But we'll move on to our second speaker, who is William Bevins, who completed a Master's of Biomedical Science in 2016 at the University of Melbourne, investigating proteins within the placenta and their links to preeclampsia. He has worked at the office of Adam Bandt, helping develop science and research policies, and helped organise the March for Science. William now works as a research assistant at the School of Population and Global Health at Uni Melbourne, starting a PhD in 2018. And most importantly, he is a mediator at the Science Gallery, which everyone should go to. And I would go to any gallery that requires a mediator. William. <laughs> Uh, good evening. Mediator is an interesting term, isn't it? It's not like that. It's not. It's not scary or intimidating. So you should definitely visit. It's open until the end of the month. So come on down. So the story I wanted to talk about tonight. Um, and sorry about my hands. I've never used one of these mics, so I don't exactly know where they go. But the story I wanted to talk to you about tonight um, crosses a couple of important themes uh, for contemporary Australian science. Um, well, I guess the first theme is blood, because tonight's blood. But uh, I'd wanted to tell this story for a while, and it kind of incidentally related to blood, which was handy. Uh, but the second theme is the idea of the commercialization of science um, and uh, the pitfalls of that and just some stories that we can get out of that. So it's a story about Elizabeth Holmes. So uh, she's pretty famous now. She was the first self-made uh, female billionaire in the world. Um, so it's a Silicon Valley story. Um, so you can derive out of that what you will. Um, but to begin with, uh, it begins in high school. So Elizabeth was a fantastic student. Um, she excelled in maths and all the sciences. In, in high school, she developed uh, software that she sold to Chinese universities, uh, which is pretty amazing, because in high school, I worked in a fish and chip shop. And I, I wasn't even good at that. Uh, so comparatively, this is pretty good. Um, she graduated, got a scholarship to go to Stanford, uh, which is very prestigious. Um, and she got a stipend there to do research, which she used to uh, develop a patch, a wearable patch, which uh, helped dispense drugs. And this was in the early 2000s, so this was pretty um, amazing technology at the time. So to give you an idea, and the best way I can sort of sum up Elizabeth is that she was a visionary. She was quite stoic, uh, but she was driven, and, and her mentality, and I think I'd, I'd urge you to remember this through the entire story, going to happen a lot, I can tell. Um, I'd urge you to remember her as a visionary. She wanted to change the world. She believed um, that science uh, was there to help people and, and bring people out of the world. So that's kind of the mentality that she had. Um, so after her first uh, year at Stanford where she uh, developed this patch, an amazing creation, she wanted to go bigger. She still hasn't, didn't have that, that idea that changed the world. Um, and so she approached her professors uh, that she had the previous year and asked the question, so, professors, I want to change the world. I, I believe the healthcare system in America's cooked. She didn't say that, but she thought it was bad, um, which it is. Um, she wanted to develop a technique where just with a drop of blood, you could get, um, analyse all the diseases that you could usually have to go through laborious blood works for. That was the idea. Change, change the healthcare scene in America that way. Instead of people having to spend hundreds of dollars for blood testing. You could be done in a, a 20 buck down at your supermarket. That was the idea. And all the professors said, no, I can't do it. Impossible. When you break the, when you, the probe will break the skin and uh, um, uh, there'll be debris all in through the interstitial fluid. Can't do it. Impossible. 
This is, you know, a decade and a half ago. Things have changed now, but back then it was crazy. Um, except one person. One person said, and that was her career advisor, said, you know what, there's, you know, you, probably you can't do it, but there's always going to be haters and there's always going to be people that doubt you, so just dab on them and don't worry about it. Um, and so she went, perfect. That's, if she was nothing if not determined. And so she pushed on. Um, she enlisted one of her high school mates that she went uh, with to approach uh, funders. So and this is probably one of my favourite parts of the story because it's kind of wild, it's kind of weird. Um, the funding situation in Silicon Valley is very different to the funding situation uh, as a public researcher. So um, if you're a public researcher, you, um, you go to NHMRC or ARC or NIH or anything and you develop your you know, billion-page report, blood and sweat and tears and... You know, your friends and your relationships melt down and you give it your mental health and it's all cooked. And, uh, and then you send this paper away and it gets read by people around the table and they say, oh, it's a great report, but, you know, the government only gives us $20 a year for science, so we have to buy lunch, so whatever. Um, we're not funding you. Anyway, so that's a public system. Not great. Not fun. Do I still want to do my PhD? Less and less when I hear stuff like that. Um, but in Silicon Valley, it's very different. Um, I've researched a lot about this, I've read a lot about it, I've asked my friends who've done commerce and they've done finance and investment. Um, the way I can sort of sum it up is nobody has any idea what they're doing. They don't know what's going on. They're a bunch of rich people, uh, which is fine, but you know, they don't, no one knows what's gonna be big next. So it's a big crapshoot. Um, and most importantly, it's a big circle jerk. So I'm gonna try not to get too graphic with this, but the basic premise is, you're an entrepreneur and you approach what they call a venture capitalist, which is a cool term, that's so American, I love it. Um, you approach a venture capitalist and say, I've got a great idea. Can you fund it? And they go, yeah, what's the idea? And it doesn't have to be a good idea. It's usually like a food-related smartphone app thing, like chicken nuggets or something, or like how to, how to get the chicken, cheapest chicken nuggets in like a square mile or something like that. And that's the first time they go, oh, yeah, that's good, we will invest that, but you've got to make a narrative. So you've got to say, well, chicken nuggets are good, but poor people need this app because it will change the world because you, know, you can make cheaper chicken nuggets for everyone. And they'll go, damn, that's good. And then they'll, they'll invest in that because it's a narrative, it's a story. Now that's step one, the jerk process. The second part is that these venture capitalists who have done, been jerked go to the tech press and go, okay, you know, people like Gizmodo and stuff, and they say, we got this big new product, and it's going to be big. Can you, you should do a story on this. And they go, okay, that's great. And that's the second process. The third, the, then it goes to the tech press, to the back to the investors, and they go, they're going to blow this up really big. And it's this big circle of, of jerk that just goes round and around. And it's not really a tangible thing, but that's where the wealth comes from. So that's what happened in this situation. But Elizabeth was especially good at this. So she was a great scientist and a great negotiator. So she, the deal that she made with the venture capitalists was, you give me millions of dollars to develop this thing and um, I get to make all the decisions and you don't get to know how the technology works. And they thought, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And they, they gave her $6 million. Um, and, and if that's not a red flag, I don't know what is because that should give you a bit of an idea where the story's going. So... Um, the next step was to develop the technology. So this was in the early 2000s. Um, things were different back then, obviously. It was pre-Facebook even, I think. Um, and so the next step was to employ um, the other main scientist in this story, Ian Gibbons. Now, Ian Gibbons um, had 30 years' experience by this stage 
in developing technology um, similar to this, so med medical diagnostics and, and, and the like. And Elizabeth needed a guy or a girl like this to be able to um, uh, take it to the next level because what she had was an idea and some of the machinery um, and he was going to take it to the next level. And Ian Gibbons was kind of like the opposite as Elizabeth. She was, a, she was a macro thinker. She wanted to change the world. She wanted to um, make life better for everyone. But Ian was kind of a bit different. He thought on a micro level. He thought experiment basis. He wanted to um, do the grudge work, do it right and go home. That was his attitude. And you'd think they'd complement each other, but they didn't really. Um, they butt heads a lot. Um, so he set to work in the, in the mid-2000s as the um, Elizabeth's um, sort of head scientist was his title. Um, so he went to work and started working away and then suddenly realised that things weren't really working out. The tests, the, the, the results weren't what they were supposed to be. Um, what Elizabeth was saying, what the media was saying about um, Elizabeth's product uh, wasn't what he was finding out. And he started to get concerned. And as time went on, he raised those concerns with Elizabeth. And in the early 2010s, he became extremely concerned because more investors were coming in, more money was being pumped in, and the tech press was starting to say that she was the new messiah and this was going to change the face of the globe. And he was amazingly distressed by this. So much so that he held meetings uh, with the board um, and threatened to go to the press with this. Um, and Elizabeth's response was to double down. And that's kind of what you see in these situations where people with a lot of money don't want to kind of admit they're wrong, so they kind of... And anyway, Elizabeth's case, she went to the Department of Defence and said, hey, we got this awesome product that our head scientist doesn't actually think is good, um, and you should use it for your soldiers in Afghanistan. Like, and, and obviously that's a terrible idea because the Department of Defence has scientists too. And so they came in and they said, hey, well, we want to look at your machines. They tried and they didn't work. And so they went to the FDA, which is the big regulatory body in, in America. They deal with a lot of this sort of technology um, and started to kick up a fuss and say, you need to investigate this. And this is where a lot of the trouble started for uh, Elizabeth's company, uh, Theranos. Um, and uh, Elizabeth, again, a cunning operator, said, um, uh, sent an email to, uh, I guess, a friend at the time um, and a person you may know who is now a star of the Trump administration, General Mad Dog Mattis. Yeah, that's a familiar name. So she got in contact with uh, uh, Mattis and said, um, hey, I think this is a great technology. Can you, like, help us out a bit? And he did. And he uh, wrote to the FDA and said, you don't need to investigate this. We're going to actually bring it up in the military. And so at that time, the investigations were dropped. And when Mattis retired, he became a board member of uh, Elizabeth's company. That's kind of the way it works um, in, this, in this field. It's all cool. Um, uh, and so this is kind of how the company started to operate. The board of directors slowly started to become what was to be known as uh, the war room. So that's what they called the, the, the director room, the war room. And when it's filled with people like General Mad Dog Mattis and kind of in, it was Henry Kissinger was in that board as well. So if you don't know much about Henry Kissinger, probably read up about him because, you know, if you're going to go to battle, you want someone that can commit a few war crimes, I'll just tell you that. And so... Um, like, not for the company, I mean, it's, it's not real. Um, so that's, that was the face of Theranos, and things didn't get any better. Ian Gibbons, the amazing scientist, wasn't able to change the, uh, direct, uh, the trajectory for this company. He couldn't make it work, and this frustrated him. And as a scientist, you can probably understand what it's like when things aren't going right. You've got these pressures of the big company, or your supervisor, your supervisor, 
um, telling you to make it work and it doesn't work. Um, so it all came to a head in uh, 2013. Um, Ian approached the board, approached Elizabeth and made it known that it can't go on any longer. This is, this is not going to work. This is an unviable product. Um, and then he went home. And there was discussions that night in the board of directors what was going to happen, what direction they were going to take. Um, Ian's at home with his wife and gets a phone call. Um, he answers, picks it up. Um, and they say, uh, it's, it's Elizabeth's secretary saying, you've got to come in tomorrow. We've got a big meeting um, uh, with you. And uh, dress your best. And he puts down the phone, he turns to his wife and says, sullen, they're going to fire me, aren't they? And she says, yes, that's what's going to happen. Um, uh, that night, Ian uh, takes a lot of med his, his medication. that he's, he's dealing with cancer a lot and he has a lot of pain medication as well. Um, he takes an overdose of his medication to kill himself, um, to, deal with, um, to deal with what had happened. And obviously... Um, it took him about a week to pass away from his injuries and it was due, um, his wife says to this day, to the stress put on him and, and the disappointment um, of what had happened. And I, I don't want to finish this talk on a down note because it is, but I also kind of do in a sense because I think this is something that is probably not talked about enough in science because I won't pretend to understand um, what was going through the mind of uh, Ian um, when he decided to kill himself. But I think um, from a, uh, as a uh, as someone who's done science in a, in a stressful situation, not nearly that stressful, but I think everyone of us that has done that probably understands a little bit of what it's like when um, these pressures build up um, and you put your, yourself under it. And uh, so I, I, I didn't want to finish on a down note, but I think it's important to say that. Um, uh, anyway. Um, so Rochelle, uh, Ian's wife, um, calls up and explains the situation and, and, and the corporate bouquet of flowers she received was a cease and desist from Elizabeth telling her never to, to talk to the press about this and to return um, all of the Theranos um, and Elizabeth's work back to the company. So that was, that was what they were dealing with at that stage. Um, since then, and I urge you to read up about it because it's very interesting, um, the Wall Street Journal did a big article and exposed everything um, at, the, at the laboratories of Theranos and Elizabeth's work and how big of a fraud it was vindicating in, in, in a way because um, his science was sound um, and that's, I think, what we've got to remember. He did everything that he set out to do um, and now uh, all the tech press that sort of regaled Elizabeth has retracted their statements. They've said she went from a $4.5 billion um, superstar of Silicon Valley to being you know, touted as worth $0 now. She's banned from her laboratories for two years um, and the company is in disarray. So I, I guess in a sense I did finish on a down note anyway, but um, I, I did want to finish on the note where um, Ian is vindicated for his, his important work. So um, read up on the story because it's, it's, it's probably even more interesting than I could ever make it and uh, hopefully it gives you a little bit to think about as well. So thank you.